The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelations chapter 15 through 16. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests, and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God, and from his power and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the king from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. They, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great, to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath. 
and every island fled away, and no mounds were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the word of the Lord. Weeks like today, I am thankful that our church does not have a marquee out front that advertises the sermon title. Uh, for a couple reasons. First of all, titling sermons is really difficult, right? It's, it's hard work. Uh, surprisingly, you, you'd think that it'd be easy, but, but you, when you think about it, you're taking 50 minutes of content and trying to distill it down to a few words that sort of summarizes and captures the essence of the message without sounding cheesy or cliche, right? It's kind of tough. But the second reason that I'm glad we don't have a marquee out front is because sermon titles that share the same topic as this week's passage, um, it's a good thing that they aren't displayed. I think that if that were the case, if, if, if sermon titles like, like this one were displayed, we'd have a hard time getting people here in our church because I would imagine sermon titles like, drink up, you heathens, judgment is served, <laughs> isn't necessarily gonna pull the masses into the, the walls of the church. Now, that's not my official title here, but uh, we'll work on it. But you can see after reading this passage how this could be a contender. This passage makes the wrath, the judgment of God, even the anger of God, an unavoidable subject. There's no way you can read through Revelation 15 and 16 and sidestep the matter. It's a topic that nearly everyone whether Christian or non-Christian, are relatively uneasy with, right? It kind of makes us squirm a little bit when we talk about the anger of God. It seems heavy-handed. It seems blunt, especially if we've been in passages like this over the last several weeks where it's passage after passage. And so I don't blame you if you're sitting in a pew and you're plotting in your mind a way to quietly escape to the back and out the hallway, uh, but the creaky floors won't let you do that inconspicuously. Uh, you'd think that as a, a missional church, people, as a church that's committed to reaching not yet believing people and, and inviting them in to participate in what God is doing here in his church through the person and the work of Jesus, you would think that as sort of... Uh, a church wanting to attract people, we would avoid topics like this. That we'd want to steer away from offensive or off-putting topics that people have labeled as the reason why people are pushing away from God. You'd say, well, let's, let's stick to passages like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, or Ephesians 2, of God being rich in his mercy, or talk about 2 Corinthians 5, where God makes us a new creation. And yes, we love those things. We love highlighting God's love and his mercy, his grace, and his kindness. It's good for us to be drawn to these attractive characteristics of God. I would, I would even label them, just for the sake of labeling them, more soft characteristics of God. And on the opposite side of those soft characteristics, we, we see the, the hard characteristics, like God's 
judgment, his wrath, his justice, the fact that he's a jealous God. And so we'd want to lean more toward the soft stuff instead of the hard stuff to pull people in, right? Now, there are churches and Christians that have been doing this, trying to accommodate the culture, make, make this message, make this God more palatable. They've been editing God for the sake of being missional. And so they avoid talking about sin. They avoid topics of God's wrath. They say, well, you know what? That, that was the Old Testament God. He, he just was really angry back then. Now he's kind of chilled out a little bit. New Testament God is all about love and grace and, and mercy. But not only is that terrible theology, right? Because we see God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's continuously the same through the Old Testament to the New Testament. But by omitting the hard parts about God, by cutting out his justice and his wrath, his jealousy and his anger, it's outrageously dangerous and tragically misleading. See, when we flatten God to fit our preferences, to fit our ideologies about what God should be like, it simultaneously flattens the good news of the gospel. Or to say it another way, when we take things out like judgment and wrath, we remove the necessary backdrop that makes the beauty of grace stand out. And when we correctly understand these hard parts about God, and I, and I air quote them because I, I don't think that they're actually hard parts. I think they're, they're necessary parts. They're parts that, that it, when we understand them correctly, we move from tolerating these truths about a just God to celebrating the justice of God. Instead of cringing at the thought of God's wrath and anger and justice being poured out, we worship, we, we rejoice, we celebrate. I think that's the proper response when we come to passages like Revelation 15 and 16. And the time I have now, I I hope to make headway to that direction. To go from a place of cringing at the thought of justice to, to embracing God for who he is, to celebrate who he is and what he's done. And I realize that some of us might have a long way to go here. This is definitely a barrier for a lot of people when they think about God and if he's attractive, if you're really into the God of the Bible or not. I realize some people might have a long way to go to get to the point of celebrating the justice of God, but we're gonna get to work. We're gonna dive into this. We're gonna ask the Spirit for help as we go. Father, we thank you for your word and how it portrays you accurately. If it were not for your word, we would not know you. We would not know you to the extent in which we know you. Now, sure, creation can tell us that you're the creator and you, you make beautiful things, but we would not be able to find out just how severe your wrath is, just how serious you are about sin. So we thank you for this passage. We ask that you would 
reveal yourself to us in a way where we would respond in worship, that we would give thanks for who you are and what you have done for us. Father, I ask that you'd help me to speak clearly. Would you help my mind to think sharply? Would you soften our hearts to receive what you'd have for us, that the gospel would be good news? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you're just joining us, um, we're not a church that's just all about, you know, we're not this fire and brimstone church. Stepping in here one Sunday, I might kind of feel like it, okay? Uh, But we've actually been in the book of of Revelation for a few months now. Um, And if we were to take a 30,000-foot view of the book of Revelation, uh, what the book of Revelation is showing us is how God makes good on all of his promises. Now, to oversimplify the promises of God, we can put them into two categories, two big umbrellas. The first umbrella that, that God promises is that he will punish and destroy all evil. That anything that is not holy, anything that is not righteous will be wiped away in order to preserve his kingdom. And secondly, the other umbrella is that God will deliver his people from being crushed in that process. Those are the two big umbrellas. And really, as we talk about God establishing the kingdom of heaven here on earth, these are two sides of the same coin, that you can't have one without the other. And the last 10 chapters of Revelation have been chronicling how this judgment, simultaneous judgment and deliverance of God's people will unfold and actually is currently unfolding as we speak. This began with the seven seals as Jesus, the one who is worthy, the lamb who was slain, started opening the seals, which led to the unraveling of creation, right? Here's the judgment of God. But here in the midst of judgment, we see Jesus sealing in his people, protecting them from the destruction. Then we run into the seven trumpet blasts that function as another procession of judgments. And then there, inside of those are the, the seven thunders, which we don't really know anything about because John has said not, told not to write them down. But inside of these trumpet blasts, we see destruction is coming. God's wrath is bearing down on humanity and the world. But inside of the trumpet blast is the promise that the church, God's chosen people, will not be destroyed with the world, that they'll be protected, that they will be preserved. Then we move into... Later chapters here, chapter 10 and 11, where there's a heavenly cosmic battle between Satan and the holy angels of God, which is one because of the blood of Christ. The Satan's thrown down to earth. His goons are fixed on disrupting and dismantling the church that whatever God has going on here, got going on here on earth with his people where they're trying to sabotage that. But then again, we're reminded that all the true believers, those who have trust in Christ, are protected and, and saved from perishing. And eventually, Satan will get what's his. That he'll be crushed for good, and we saw that last week where we came to the harvest of the earth where this wine press uh, situation happens where everyone will give an account. And now we come to these seven plagues, the seven bulls 
of wrath. Now, when we look at this, as we go, go through these uh, chapters, it, it's p- common for us to read this and think that this is all happening chronologically. That, that if, if, we did, if we were to think that way, it would appear as if God has destroyed the world over and over again, at least three or four times by now. But the book of Revelation isn't written in a chronological matter. It uses a literary technique called progressive recapitulation. That's a $5 phrase. Progressive recapitulation, which basically means this, that, that there's one main event of judgment that's happening. There's one main event. It's not the world getting destroyed over and over three or four different times. It's, it's one event. But as this one event is unfolding, John is telling it from different angles. He's, he's coming back to the, the same series of events and providing more nuance and more meaning to what's going on within God's judgment. And in communicating like this, what, what, what we feel, what, what God is doing and what he's intentionally revealing to us is the thoroughness of his wrath and judgment. Like even just in, in, in rehashing some of that real quickly here, you, you, you get the sense that God is serious about punishing evil. That, that there's no stone of evil unturned. There's no grading curve. Hell is being unleashed on hell. And if you've been with us through the last few weeks, or maybe you already have it, maybe you're starting to feel some judgment fatigue. It seems like that's all we've been hearing about for the last 10 chapters. And to be honest with you, I started feeling it back in chapters eight and nine. I'm still wrestling with this. But if this is you, if you're, you're getting wore out by this, don't bail on me yet because Chapter 15 promises that the seven plagues that we're about to see are the last for the wrath of God, for it is finished. We're coming to the end. That's what John is saying. He's saying this this great and amazing sign that he sees from, from heaven, it means that the end is near. The day is approaching when evil is permanently destroyed and God's people are delivered to the new heavens and new earth to live in paradise forever with God. So it's right around the corner. And as we read chapters 15 and 16, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, it, it kind of feels like we are, we're being teleported back into the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus. Many of you are familiar with this story. Moses and Pharaoh. In fact, before we dive into the chapters 15 and 16 of Revelation, I actually want to take us back to the almost beginning of your Bibles in Exodus. It's time for a story here. Exodus chapter one starts with God's people, who's known as Israel, living in a foreign land where for centuries they were very prosperous. Um, God had brought them into Egypt after a severe famine that, nearly, that threatened all of their lives, and God provided a place, a, a sort of a, a haven for them to live and to grow and multiply as the people of God. And, and for a long time, things went well for them, but there was a, a turn in events where a new pharaoh, where the new, a new king of Egypt took the throne, and he was threatened by the vast number of Israelites that surrounded him. He said, there are too many foreigner, foreigners here. They have to be suppressed. And so Pharaoh, by, 
by any measure of evil, began oppressing the Israelites. He forced them into hard labor. Um, They were made slaves to make Egypt a great nation. And, and, And people were being oppressed and persecuted just for the fact that they were Israelites, right? This is racism here at its finest. And then we see Pharaoh take a, a dive even deeper into evil, and he, he implements infanticide and all of Israel's male babies. Now, in this time, Israel is oppressed. They have it hard. And, but one thing that... One, Scripture tells us here in Exodus chapter one, it tells us that the more that Israel was oppressed, the more that Pharaoh persecuted them, the more God multiplied them. The more they spread through the land. Now, you know how when things are going pretty good, we have this tendency to sort of forget about God, right? He kind of takes a back seat. We just sort of put life on cruise control. Maybe we have this general sense of thankfulness, but, but we're not really living day-to-day mindfully of, of God. Well, the same thing happened with, with these Israelites. As, as they were experiencing prosperity in the land, God kind of took the back seat. They started adopting a bunch of, of Egypt's practices and sort of uh, became acclimated to their own culture. But then it wasn't until the fish hits the fan where people wake up and realize that they're needy of God. Like that's when they realize, oh God, we need you. That's where they start doubling down on prayer and saying, Lord, we need you to do something for us. That's exactly where Israel was at. Their comfort was gone. They started groaning, crying out to God. And and instead of God, who had been put in the back seat saying, you know what, I'm not here right now. I'll leave a message, right? Ghosting them. God didn't do that. God heard their cries. He, he saw their affliction. He remembered the covenant, the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would not forsake them. And God acts on it. Now, to the people who are saying, you know, God in the Old Testament is not very gracious, right there is one of a thousand evidences of God's grace in the Old Testament. And through a series of events that could only happen by the province of God, he calls a man named Moses to be the leader of the Israelites. He tells Moses, go to Pharaoh, who is, by the way, the most powerful man in the world. Go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Now, in this story, we already see how Pharaoh is essentially the epitome of evil. He's just an evil man. He has no thought toward God. And so when, when Pharaoh makes, or when, when Moses makes his request, Pharaoh is unimpressed by God's demands. He, he brushes Moses off and, and basically says, who's this God that you speak of? I don't know him. And upon hearing of God's pending plan of deliverance, Pharaoh's heart gets harder and harder as time progresses. And then he applies more and more pressure, generating more and more affliction for, for the Israelites. 
But this doesn't scare God away. Moses doesn't back away and say, you know what, I, I guess you know, we'll, we'll stay put here. He keeps going. God is bound to his people by covenant and he wants them. And so God reintroduces himself to his people because most of them have forgotten about who this God is. And he does this in, in Exodus chapter six. It says, the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand uh, he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to them, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard their groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I've remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, he says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into a land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And here we see God tells us what he's going to do. One, he's going he's to deal with the Egyptians. He's going to judge them for their evil. And two, God is going to deliver his people. He's going to save them. And so God, in this act of, of judgment and deliverance, God starts dishing out plagues on the Egyptians as judgment for the way that they treated Israel. And it comes in, in three cycles here. There's 10 total plagues, but it comes in cycles. The first cycle was the Nile River is turned to blood, and then we see frogs coming down the river, and, and gnats, dust becomes gnats everywhere. Then the second cycle, there's flies, and Egypt's livestock dies. People break out with boils and sores. And the third cycle of judgment comes, and there's hail and locusts, and darkness covers the earth. And with each one of these plagues, Pharaoh's heart gets harder and harder until God finally breaks his heart with the final plague, which is called the Passover. Now, this final plague is, is the most severe of all the plagues that God had unleashed on Egypt, and, and he did not do it without a warning. He told the people, this is coming. Here's how you can prepare for this. And he said, the angel of death is gonna pass through at night on a very specific night, and the firstborn of every child, the firstborn child and animal would die of every household in Egypt. Now, the only way to avoid this was to take the blood of an innocent young lamb and paint it on the doorpost. And so when, when the angel of death were to come to that house, he would pass over. His, his Death would not come to the house. The, the angel would pass over that house, and God would spare their lives. Now, Pharaoh ignored these warnings. Most of Egypt ignored these warnings. And the next morning, Pharaoh woke up to find his son dead. Now, Pharaoh may have been evil, but even evil people have affections for their own children. 
right? Pharaoh's heart broke. He finally caved. He realized that God was mightier than he was, and he, he let the people go, and as Israel left Egypt, they plundered, it says they, they plundered the Egyptians. I mean, they took all of their wealth, all their valuables, all their gold, and walked out with them, and so the Israelites are free, sort of. You see, even though Pharaoh's heart is broken, it's already, it's so hard, it's cemented, he changes his mind once again, and he says that if I can't have the Israelites, if, if I can't have them as slaves, then I'd rather they be dead. And he sends his army to pursue after Moses and God's people, and, and God's people are pinned between the death that's coming on chariots and the Red Sea, right? Either way they turn, there's trouble, and you probably know what happens next. God opens up the Red Sea. Israel walks through the Red Sea as if they're on dry land. And then behind them, God closes up the waters. Now here is God's judgment once again. God's people are delivered through the waters, yet it's in these waters that Pharaoh's army is destroyed. They get clobbered. In fact, the last words that they have is, is run away. Go, turn around and run away because God is for them and he's obviously against us. And so it's in this one act of judgment and deliverance that, that Israel is freed and Egypt is punished for the evil that they have done. And it's here on the other side of the Red Sea that Moses and company are in all-out worship mode. They're just, they're just belting it here. And this is where we're introduced to the song of Moses, which will come, come up later on, and they start singing. Let me just read a little bit of it to you. It's in Exodus 15. He says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. And he keeps going and going. There's 15 more verses of, of praise and worship in response to the deliverance that God has offered his people and the judgment that has been poured out on the Egyptians. Now you're probably looking at me saying, why, why are we in the book of Exodus if we're supposed to be preaching through the book of Revelation? Right? This seems like a detour. But there are things that we need to see here in the book of Exodus that, that resurface again in Revelation. There's striking similarities between what God had done for his people in Egypt and what God is doing for his people in Revelation chapter 15 and 16. And what I'd like to submit to you is that, that this Old Testament story that we have of, of the Exodus, yes, it happened. This, this is, these are facts. This is real history. But this is a prototype of the truer and the ultimate exodus that we are all waiting for. The day where God completely delivers his people. The day where all evil is punished and judged. So let's take a look at Revelation 15 now. Let's, let's, let's make our way through here and see what John is telling us. Revelation 15, verse one. Then I saw another sign in heaven. Look at the adjectives. Great and amazing. 
seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps in their hands. And they were singing the song of Moses, right? We just saw that in Exodus 15. Singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, which we were told in Revelation 14 that God's people would sing a new song, the song of the Lamb, a song that only the people who have experienced the grace of God would know the words to, and here are the words, but, but when he says that we wouldn't actually know it, that, that he's not speaking about just, just the words itself, but actually know it inside, have this deep faith in the words and how they are true. And the words are great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear the Lord, fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, John isn't very good at keeping the suspense here. Any good storyteller knows that you keep the tension until you get to the end, right? That's where the climax is. Well, John, he lets lets the cat out of the bag right away. He's telling us God wins. It's like he's telling the Exodus story, but jumping straight to the praise fest when when Moses and company are on the other side of the Red Sea. And and John does this for a good reason. He's writing like a pastor. He's speaking to his people. He's speaking to us, people who feel oftentimes like we aren't winning. No, I... Honestly, I felt like this a lot this week with, with some of the things that are going on in current events, um, looking at some of the external markers. For example, I mean, just churches are declining all across North America, right? Attendance is dropping, churches are closing, right? It seems like, like where, where are God's people going? Or you can sense this with, with our position in society, how the vice president's wife is just slammed this week for teaching at a Christian school that holds to Christians, biblically Christian sexual ethics. Or about the the heinous abortion bill that was passed in New York this week. Or just culture's general stance of mockery toward Christians and Jesus. It doesn't feel like we're winning. Or you can even feel this sort of internally, in a personal sort of way. Like, I just can't get over my sin. Like, like there's things that I, I hate about myself. There, there's this sin that I don't like, but for some reason I just keep getting wrapped back up into it. That I have these habits, these desires, and, and even though I'm trying to fight them, I constantly am feeling like I'm a failure. And so this is sort of, this is sort of the reality. This is what it feels like for Christians a lot of times. It seems like things aren't trending in the way that we'd hope. 
And things aren't necessarily moving up and to the right. And so it's easy to feel discouraged. And John, being the good pastor that he says, he says, no, Christian, look at this. Look at this. You're standing beside the sea of glass that is mingled with fire. Now, what's that mean? He said, you're standing on the other side of deliverance, that Jesus has delivered you. He's been victorious, that his life, death, and resurrection in your place means that you are a conqueror with Christ. You've escaped the oppression of evil. You've escaped being under the thumb of death and sin and the grave. The powers of sin are null and void over you. He's saying, church, this is the reality that you need to anchor yourself in. Because even though circumstantially things don't look like they're going away, this is the true reality. We are more than conquerors with Christ. Now to believe this, to really lay hold of this, for to this to become an anchoring part of our life, it requires faith. It requires faith in things that we cannot yet see or things that we are not yet experiencing. But the promise that John lays out is that victory is around the corner. And I've been in enough locker rooms to know that winners sing. Did you know that? Ask Queen, right? We are the champions, my friend. Winners sing. And losers bite their tongues. I remember in high school, I was on the football team. I was terrible at football. But we had a couple of great years. We won the state championship in 2003. It was a lot of fun. And I just would remember the feeling of being in the locker room after winning some of those close games and just letting the music just, I mean, I don't know how we had any hearing after that. Just pumping music through the locker room. And then I also remember a couple years after that where our football team started being really terrible, the long, quiet bus rides home. Nobody talking to each other, no music. You just sit in misery. Why? Because you lost. Christian, you are not a loser. As much as you might feel like it, you are not a loser because of what Christ has done. You are victorious with him. And here we are on the side of the sea of glass, and it says we've got our harps, and I'm pretty sure that if they had Gibson guitars uh, at that point when John is writing, he would say, you, you got your guitars out and you're playing. He's saying that you're winning, you're singing. You're singing the song of the Lamb. And that's why we come together on Sunday mornings and sing. That's why we sing. It's not a pity party. I said, look, behold, at what, look at what God has done. We have been delivered. We've been set free. Sin is no longer a tyrant over our lives. And John sheds even more light on why we sing. He entered this in verse one of chapter 15. He picks this back up in verse five. He says, after this, I looked in the sanctuary of the tent of the witness in heaven was opened and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues. And he talks about how they're clothed in white. These are angels who are working under the orders of God. These are not demonic angels like we've experienced in, in the past. 
They're executing the will and the justice of God. It talks about the sanctuary being filled with smoke for the glory of God. This is another reference to, to the Old Testament where Moses is up on Mount Sinai and the presence of God comes down on the mountain. And John says in 16.1, then I heard a loud voice from the temple, it's God's voice, say, telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now since time began, since humanity came into existence, God has been accumulating Wrath. For every evil word, thought, and deed, anything that violates the goodness, the righteousness, the perfection, the holiness of God is, is like a debit card being swiped, right? A withdrawal or adding to the wrath of God. Whenever someone broke the mold of the righteousness of life, whenever we rebelled against God, we are adding to the inventory of God's wrath. Now, there's a lot of people who say, well, if God's full of wrath, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of living on my own terms. Why is it that God hasn't just struck me dead if that's true? Well, it's because God is storing up this wrath. He's, he's being gracious to you and postponing and giving you time to repent of your sins and turn back to him. Psalm 75 tells us, for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. That means it's not stagnant. It means that there's new wine, there's new wrath being poured into it. And he pours out from it, and all the wicked, say all the wicked, all the wicked, all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Now here in chapter 16, we're seeing this cup being poured out. Uh, it's being parsed out in seven different ways, seven different angels with these plagues, and they're, they're draining the wrath of God down to the dregs. Judgment is being served down to the last drop. All of the wrath of God that had been accumulating since eternity past is being dumped out. And I don't have time to go through all of these, but you can go through and look and see the first angel pours out the bowl. Second pours out the bowl. Third pours out the bowl. And as you go through this, there are distinct similarities between Exodus and the plagues in Exodus and the plagues in Revelation. There's actually a lot of similarities here between Exodus and Revelation. In fact, even at the beginning, where, where God's people are oppressed, the more they're oppressed, the more they multiply. That's very much true of the church. The more the churches tried to be snuffed out, the more God's people grow and expand and become more and more faithful to the word of God. And then we see the similarities of, of the plagues. But there's boils, there's blood, there's, there's darkness. We see frogs. And this is affecting the earth, the sea, the economy, the kingdoms of the world. And God is showing us that, that what he did in Exodus, he's going to do to an even larger extent across the earth. That he's going to judge the wickedness, all of the wickedness, and deliver his people. Now, just as God directed the plagues of Pharaoh, uh, the, the plagues of, of, of the Exodus at Pharaoh and the Egyptians specifically, 
Now God directs the plagues of Revelation 15 and 16 directly at Satan and the wicked. These people, the people who are worshipers of the beast are the people who who bore the mark of the beast, who have conformed to the societal structures that Satan has created to lead people away from God. And when we think Satan worshipers, most of the time we think of like, the occult, dark capes, people sacrificing goats and doing weird Satan-worshipping things. That's not necessarily the case. Beast worshipers is a very broad category. In fact, you don't have to follow Satan specifically to follow Satan. Tracking with me? We've talked about this before, that Satan has one goal, and that goal is to rob God of any of the allegiance he is uh, due or the worship that he's due. So Satan wins, not just by getting people to worship him, but by worshiping anything that is not God. Whether that be self, sexuality, other false gods and religions, your nationality, technology, whatever it might be that isn't God, that's a win for Satan. And Revelation has been very clear consistently that there are only two types of people. It's it's an either or situation. It's a binary situation. There's no spectrum. It's it's either you are following Jesus or you are following Satan in some way, shape, or form. And we see this, that Jesus is, it's the 144,000 that's a representation of the church that goes wherever Jesus goes, that follow Jesus, no matter what he says, the people who say that Jesus is Lord. So 24-7 with every area of life, whether that's work, our character, relationships, sexuality, money, parenting, or our worldview, we're saying we are following Jesus. And then there are those who don't. And by default, by by default of not following Jesus, they're following some manifestation of Satan, whether that's actually Satan or other religious religions or the popularizing general indifference toward God. Now, I realize that that's, that's a hard thing to say. That's hard for me to stand up here and say. And really, here's where the pushback comes in and we start squirming at the, the idea of God judging or being some sort of judgment because there are big implications to this. We can all relatively agree that it is good that Satan is judged, right? He he is evil. It's good that evil be judged. But people who are following Satan, they have to be, they have to drink the wrath of God too, right? They're, and we can, we can lament and protest this because we all know people who don't follow Jesus that are good people, right? They're kind, some of them compassionate and generous. And we think these, these good people are gonna be judged. That just doesn't seem fair. How could God do this? We say, I don't, I don't think I can believe in a God who would send good people to hell or unleash that kind of wrath on decent people. 
And I think there are two big reasons why we squirm. If we were to really get under this and why we squirm at this idea of God's judgment, I think it's because, one, we're biased, and two, our faith is weak. Now, when I say we're biased, we're biased by sin. We are sinners. The fact that we sin and constantly sin affects the way how we see God. It tends to provide a... a, a lens that we view God through, and in viewing God through this lens of sin, it casts, makes us cynical toward God motives. It warps our perspective about what is good and right and perfect. Now we can see this because the angels and the martyrs who have made their way to heaven, they don't see this as a bad thing. They don't squirm at God's judgment because the angels for sure have never been afflicted by sin and those who are, the the martyrs who are underneath the altar, they've been redeemed from their sin. They have a very different response in verse five of chapter 16. They say in response to these judgments, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was For you brought these judgments. And the people underneath the altar say, yes, they agree. The Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. They're affirming the goodness of that, of God's judgment. And in verse six, they tell us why. They're saying the wicked are getting what they deserve. See, this is the reality of God's wrath. God's wrath is always fair. It's always just. It's never misappropriated. It's doled out to the exact measure for which it is deserved. And and part of having this sinful lens to view things through, it, it causes us to question that. But one thing is clear, just like Pharaoh, as as the plagues confronted Pharaoh, his heart grew harder and harder. He he didn't turn, he didn't repent. This is what happens to these people, to the wicked who are are receiving the wrath of God. They're, They're being cemented. Their heart is getting harder and harder. In fact, they're sticking to their guns. They have time and opportunity to repent, even far before this moment in time arrives but they refuse God. In fact, it, the, the last verse of this says that they cursed God. They cursed God because the plague was so severe. Now Satan and his minions and the wicked stick to their guns and they muster up one final hurrah against God. We see that the battle of Armageddon. They're gonna try to make something happen. But we'll see that it's, I mean, we already know. We're, we're singing on the side of, uh, of the glass sea. It's futile. And so that, that's the first reason why looking at this, sin distorts our perspective of judgment. This, the second thing that comes into play is, is, is our weak faith. And I don't mean that to be an insult. But, but I think that there is a legitimate 
I don't know, I don't even know the right word. There's something that, that keeps us from wanting to believe that God's justice is what, it, what, we're, what it we're told it is because part of us doubts that God has actually saved us. There's part of us that, that questions if the life, death, and resurrection was actually sufficient to save us from this punishment. And so there's some of us that are just like, I hope that's not true because I know I can't handle God's judgment. And so our, our weak faith keeps us from affirming God's judgment. Now there's no question about the catastrophic impact of God's God's, God, God's serving his judgment to the wicked. No one survives it. At the end, all, all there are is, is rubble. And just as Egypt is left in shambles by their plagues, so are the wicked. So is this world crushed by the judgment of God. The only difference is that, that the seven plagues in Revelation are probably metaphorical for something even worse. Now, you're probably thinking, you know, I, I came to church to get encouraged. I came to church to be uplifted a little bit. There's no encouragement unless this is the backdrop for the gospel. See, the reality is we are all deserving of receiving God's wrath. Every sinful thought, word, and deed God's wrath stored up for us. But the good news is this. Those who put their faith in Jesus, those who trust in Jesus and his work on the cross for our sins, we believe that he has absorbed the entirety of God's wrath for us. That on the cross, Jesus took the undispersed, the, 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 the universal cup of wrath, and he, he drank it down to the dregs for us. That he, the sin, sinless man, was judged as if he were sinful. That he took our sin upon himself, and he drank that cup dry. And Jesus on the cross, he cried out, it is finished that's the promise for you, Christian. When God looks at you, there is not a single ounce of wrath left to be directed at you. Jesus has taken every little drop. And there's some similarity here between Jesus on the cross when he, when he cries out, it is finished, and we come to the last seventh plague here where the bowl is poured out and we hear a loud voice come out of the temple say, it is done, here are your two options. You either drink the wrath that you deserve yourself or you let Christ drink that wrath for you. You wanna talk about something being unfair. How could a sinless man, how could a sinless man be judged for my sin? See, that's God's grace to sinners like you and me to save us. In Romans 8, I, I, we didn't plan the song selection or the, I didn't even look at the liturgy this weekend, but the Lord had clearly made this, the, this, this passage from Romans 8 just stick out in, in our heads this week as we prepared. 
Yes, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How could he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, here's the question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who should bring any charge against God's church? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. If anyone is in the position to condemn, it's Jesus, but Jesus is there praying for us. He says, it's my blood that was shed on your account. See, the reason why we spend time talking about the judgment of God is because it's the backdrop for God's grace. If we don't see what's coming, there's no way we'd ever want to move toward God because of his grace. Now, kind of buried inside of um, uh, of chapter 16, there's a blessing in verse 15. It's actually in parentheses. It's sort of like a side note. There's a blessing that, that also includes a little bit of warning. He says, Jesus is speaking to John. He says, hey, hey, church, stay alert. Like, like, look out. Sin is trying to devour you. Sin is trying to suck you into its evil uh, a vortex. Stay alert. And he says, clothe yourself. Now, this, again, this goes back to the Exodus because in that night of the Passover, they stayed up, they stayed wearing their clothes so when God would pull them out, they'd be ready to go. He's clothe yourself. But he's not talking about literal clothes. He's talking about the righteousness of Christ. Toss out your, your rags of sin that you put, put on. Put on the, the righteousness of Christ. Now, the Lord's Supper is a meal that we come and we participate in every week and, and it does something deep and powerful and profound in our souls. You probably don't even realize it. This meal makes us aware of the wrath of God because here we see it's Christ's body that was broken, not mine, not yours. It was his blood that was shed, not mine, not yours. And he did this so that you would be delivered that, that evil and all wickedness would be paid for and you would be delivered. Let us come and let's take this, this meal and eat it and let's celebrate the victory that Christ has won us in Christ. Let's, let's look at the beauty of God and his just and perfect judgments and give ourselves to the giver of life to the only true and holy God. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for placing us sort of in the tension of of your judgment and your mercy. And Father, I believe that your spirit has gone before us and those who you are calling to yourself, you are softening their hearts, not hardening them to your judgment, but softening their hearts to your judgment to see that it is your good and perfect will that evil would be destroyed. It is your good and perfect will that you save your people and not destroy them with the evil that has laced within their DNA, but to to pull them out of evil and to deliver them, to give us new life, to promise us life with you for now and eternity in the new heavens and new earth, God.
We praise you and we thank you for what Christ has done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.